0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to River Glen. Uh, welcome here in Waukesha. Great to have you here. Welcome to everybody on the other side of the camera in Pewaukee. And online, uh, wherever you're located, we're delighted to have you. Thank you so much for making River Glen part of your uh, weekend. As we begin this uh, new series, I want to make an assumption. And uh, my assumption is that 99.9% of us have one of these. Yeah, we call us a phone. A mobile phone but it really is a lot more than that it, it's really a device a multi-functioning uh, device I mean you can text other people it's not just a phone you can text it's a communication device it's a social media device you can get on social media and tell the world let the world know what you had for lunch or uh, dinner right and it's an entertainment device you can play games on here you can stream television shows movies you can get on the internet you can do a search but one of the biggest parts of, of this device is the camera. You know, some of, our, some of our phones have better cameras than dedicated cameras that you can buy. And it's really, it's super easy to take a picture with one of these. You can take a selfie, right? Just do this, push the button, and you can upload it, filter it if you want. You can, you can uh, post it in a few seconds. And it's easy, it's quick, it's done, our granddaughter uh, is named Emily. She just turned seven months. She just took our first, her first selfie. Yeah. She's fascinated with phones, and it's so easy. A baby can do it. But it's not always been the case. Back in the 1800s, when cameras were invented and people started taking pictures, people would spend eight hours. They would sit in front of a camera for eight hours for the image to get burned onto the film. Can you imagine sitting for eight hours for one single uh, picture. Now, cameras have gotten a lot uh, 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 more, more complex, a lot better uh, over the years, uh, like this one right here. Maybe some of you recognize this kind of camera. It's uh, the Polaroid Land camera. Weighs about 100 pounds. Yeah. And this came out in 1961. Can you imagine You know, taking a selfie You know, with one of these for you? you, know, you- Build your arms up, and you just press the button, and uh, you know maybe you get somebody's ear. That's a, that's a, that's the best uh, you can do. Some of you have used uh, 35 millimeter cameras uh, like this one right here. So you take pictures, you use up your roll of film, and then you open up the back, you take out the roll of film, you put it in one of those little black canisters, you take it over to uh, Walgreens or Kmart. And you would just, like, hope and pray, you know, and fast, you know, that your pictures would would turn out. And uh, you had to wait a week because the film had to go through a chemical process of development. This process involved nine different chemicals, and it had to take place in a dark room. And you couldn't let any light in or it would ruin the, the picture. And this dark room process would remove, strip away some things not needed, and you could adjust and highlight aspects of the picture. Then you'd hang it up, let it dry, and make it ready to receive light. But you couldn't rush through the dark room or it would destroy the, 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 the film. So you'd wait all week for your uh, pictures and, you know, people were like, man, why is this taking so long? I feel like we're wasting time. Uh, nothing's happening. But that's when the real work and development took place. In the dark room, and truth is, we're not just waiting for finished products with our our, our film and, and and pictures, but with our lives. And maybe some of you right now, maybe you feel stuck, like you're spinning your wheels, like nothing's happening, time is wasting because you're stuck in school and you can't wait to get out, or you're stuck uh, at home and you can't wait to move out. Maybe you're maybe you're single, you can't wait to get married. Maybe you're married, can't wait to have kids. Maybe you feel stuck in a job because it doesn't feel like a career, and you want something that's going to make your heart come alive. Or maybe you've got this dream, this plan. You you want to do something for God, something significant to bless and serve other, other people, but it's just not happening right now. And in these moments when we feel stuck, like nothing is happening, we begin to wonder if God is really there, if God really cares. But could it be that God has actually put you in a dark room for a season so that uh, you can be prepared for something greater than you ever uh, imagined. Maybe God wants to take you through a process and remove some things. Maybe strip away some selfishness, some immaturity, maybe fear, lack of, lack of faith, and add some things to develop your character and make you more like him. And then you're ready to receive Uh, the light. Maybe you feel stuck, but God has actually put you in a dark room. Each weekend of this series, we're going to talk about a different character in Scripture who had to go through a dark room. And today, I want to talk about one who spent a very, very long time in the dark room. When I think of his life, it kind of reminds me of the game of uh, tetherball. How many of you have ever played this game of tetherball before in your life? Yeah, uh, pretty much Pretty much all of us. When I grew up, I remember playing this game in elementary school. For recess, we'd go out and everybody would, you know, run to the tetherball area. It was very popular, but you know what? It's not my favorite game. I, I think it's actually kind of a miserable uh, game. You know, the ball changes directions on you all the time. Just you don't see it coming. And uh, you, the way you play, you've got another person on the other side. And, and the goal is to try to hit the ball pass the other person, and wrap the ball and the rope around the, all the way around uh, the, the pole. But it's a, a tough game, especially if you're playing against somebody taller. A taller person's got an advantage. I mean, what they'll do is they'll hit the ball way above your head. It'll swing above your head and go around the pole, and, and you lose. And oftentimes, people get hit in the face, you know, playing tetherball. Uh, check out YouTube when you have some time. Go to YouTube and search tetherball fails, and uh, you'll see... Uh, yeah, you'll see what I uh, mean. But life is like a game of tetherball for us because, you know, we always have these moments where everything's going smooth, you know, everything is is good, and, uh, and then, you know, you get smacked, and the ball changes direction, and you didn't see it uh, coming. You know, uh, for example, uh, life is good, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, your car breaks down, or you get in an accident. Life is good, and... You know, all of a sudden, you get the flu. You know, the flu visits your family. Uh, Life is good. You know, the Packers won 14 games, made it to the NFC Championship, and then the San Francisco 49ers smacked us. Yeah. And that hurt. You know, life has these moments where everything is fine, everything's going good in the right direction, but it can change suddenly, and it can alter the course of your life in more serious ways. You know, maybe you've got your heart set on going to a certain school, your dream about going to this college, but then you don't get accepted, or you work hard at your job. You hit all your numbers, and then you get passed over for the promotion. Maybe you've got a long-term relationship, a long-term marriage. You think it's going to go forever, but it ends. For some, it's when the word cancer came into your life. Life is good. It's going fine. And all of a sudden, you get smacked. And here's the assumption that we often make in life. We assume that life is good means God is, is near. You know, think about how we talk about this. You know, you get a good report from the doctor. Oh, man, God is good. You uh, get a promotion at work. Oh, God really showed up in that uh, interview. You know, you go to the grocery store, you get a front row parking spot. Praise God. Yeah, but when things don't go well, think about some of the things we say. You know, how could God let that happen? Where is God when it hurts? Why do bad things happen to good people? Here's the other assumption we make. Life is not good means God is not near. And we probably all felt that way. Why didn't God come through for me? What did I do to make God mad at me? Why did God leave me? And we enter this stage or season of life that we're going to refer to as the dark room. Yeah, it's, It's interesting. Way back in the 1500s, a monk talked about this very same idea. He was such a respected monk, they called him Saint. Saint John of the Cross. He calls it uh, the dark night of the soul, and we're going to refer to it as the dark room. Here's what he says. When people go through it, they become angry uh, because they're called to do that which does not fit their needs or desires. They begin to lose interest in God, for for they measure God by themselves and not themselves by God. Isn't that true? I think that's uh, brilliant. We can feel distant from God in the dark room. You know, it's almost as if the pole uh, represents God. And the more we get smacked, the more we get hit in, in life, the further away we feel from God. And, and if that's you today, if you feel that way today, or if you've ever felt that way, today is for you. Today we're talking about a guy who went through a dark room that seemed to last a very, very long time. We're going to talk about a guy by the name of Joseph, not, not Mary's husband. Joseph, who lived during the Old Testament and grew up in one of the most dysfunctional families that you'll ever read about in the Bible. Here's how I would summarize Joseph's childhood. He is the favorite son of his dad's favorite wife. Yeah, I said that right. Yeah, his dad Jacob has four wives. You know, so, he's, so Joseph has a stepmom, or three stepmoms and a mom, and 11 brothers, and they all live together. You know, together. And it uh, kind of sounds like a reality show, doesn't it, on uh, TLC? But it's not, it's in, it's in the Bible. And this, it, this didn't happen in Utah, uh, nothing like that, okay? Then take a look at what gets added to the dysfunction. It says Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, uh, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph. A beautiful robe. Yeah, maybe you've heard this story before, or parts of this story. You know, you recognize the the coat of many colors. I think uh, Dolly Parton has a song about this, or maybe you've seen the musical Joseph and the uh, amazing Technicolor Dream Coat. Anyway, the dad gives Joseph a beautiful coat, and he gives nothing to the other children. Uh, dads, this would be like on Christmas morning. You give one of your kids an Apple Watch, and you give the rest of your kids an apple. I think they're gonna know who the favorite is. Yeah. And the brothers get very jealous. It says his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of him. The rest of them, they couldn't, they couldn't say a kind word to him. But it's not just a problem because the dad showed favoritism. It's also a problem because Joseph begins to think that he deserves it. He gets, he becomes a little arrogant. It says one night Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, They hated him even more. Joseph has this dream one night where all the other brothers, the 11 other brothers, bow down to him. And uh, then he decides to tell his brothers about this dream, which shows his lack of uh, emotional awareness. I mean, he walks out wearing that coat of many colors. And he says, "Hey, hey, guys, I had a funny dream last night. All of you bowed down to me. Isn't that interesting? And they're like, yeah, that's really interesting. And they begin to talk behind his back. They begin to plot against him. They talk about killing him. Until so one of the brothers says, You know what? We probably shouldn't kill him. Instead, while they're out working one day, they throw him in a cistern, which is a well, a pit. And they sit down and they have lunch. And they discuss what to do. Here's how the conversation went uh, Judas said to his brothers, What will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him uh, to Egypt. The brothers sell Joseph to these uh, traders. Uh, Interesting uh, fact, if you do the research, this is where the phrase uh, Trader Joe's came from. Trader Joseph's. Yeah, now you know. Just kidding. But they sell him to these traders. And then they kill a goat. They rub goat's blood on that coat, that colorful coat. They go to their dad and they say, we don't know what happened to Joseph, but uh, we found his coat. Looks like a wild animal. Uh, Attacked him. Killed him. And uh, Jacob is heartbroken. His favorite son has died. In the meantime, here's what happens to Joseph. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar an Egyptian officer, Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar's this high-ranking official in the Egyptian army. He works for Pharaoh. Potiphar buys Joseph as a slave and puts him to work in his household. And so if life is like a game of, of tetherball, I mean, up to this point, Joseph's been winning. You know, coat of many colors, favored son, uh, without really even much effort uh, from, from himself. But All of a sudden, he gets smacked, and the ball changes direction. He goes from favored son with that new coat to rejected by his brothers, thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. I mean, he thought God had this amazing plan for his life. Everybody's going to bow down to him, but it all changed suddenly. You ever been there? You think God's got a plan? You think you've got a dream, a great dream for, for life? And then all of a sudden it doesn't seem to work out. But look at what it says next. The Lord was with Joseph, and so he succeeded in everything that he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian uh, master, which I think is surprising in many ways because if the Lord was with Joseph, uh, wouldn't you think that he wouldn't have gotten rejected by his brothers and thrown into a pit and sold into slavery? But even though Joseph got, got smacked, smacked around like a tetherball, The Lord was with him. And and it's surprising how Joseph, he lost his freedom. He lost his family. He lost his his new coat. He lost his status. But Joseph works really hard and impressed Potiphar so much, Potiphar puts him in charge of his entire household. But then Joseph's story takes an interesting turn. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. Joseph was a very handsome and well built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. Mrs. Potiphar begins to have eyes for uh, uh, Joseph while her husband is away uh, working. She finds him attractive, and she begins to pursue having an affair with Joseph. But look at Joseph's amazing response. Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He's held everything back from me except you because you're his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her and he kept out of her way as much as as possible. I want you to notice what Joseph doesn't say. You know, he doesn't say, you know, I get in trouble for that or, you know, I could get killed for that. Instead, he says, I won't do that to my God, even though God allowed his brothers to reject him and throw him in a pit and sell him into slavery. Think about it. Nothing works out for Joseph. He gets smacked around like a tetherball. And he probably felt tempted to say, you know what? She's very attractive. I think I'm just going to do whatever I feel like uh, doing. But instead, Joseph says, I'm not going to sin against God, which is amazing because disappointment and difficulty in life often leads to disobedience. I mean, when things are not going our way, when nothing seems to be going our way, it makes sin more appealing. It makes temptation more alluring. And we live in a culture that says you can try God, you know, try living live in God's way. But if you don't get what you want, you can go ahead and get it your way. And this is especially tempting in the area of of sexuality. Something inside of us says, you know, the idea of waiting until marriage, that seems long and ridiculous. I came across a survey of Christian singles. Uh, They asked, what's your number one temptation that you struggle with? 90% said sexual temptation. 90%. 10% uh, evidently struggle with uh, lying, I guess, (laughs) right? Um, But it isn't just a singles issue. It is a marriage issue as well. Many married people think, you know, my marriage isn't what I expect it to be. I'm I'm, I'm having feelings for somebody else. I don't feel in love with my spouse anymore. And disappointment can lead to disobedience. But Joseph says, I won't do it. I won't do it. Then one day Potiphar's wife makes an aggressive move. On Joseph, and Joseph literally runs away from her, which is a great lesson for us. He doesn't say, You know, let me see what happens next. I'll see how far this goes. Or, You know, I'm gonna wait until I'm tempted. Instead, when she reached, reaches out and grabs his coat, he, he, he runs out of his coat. But then after he runs away, I mean, she feels so embarrassed. She tells the guard, Joseph tried to attack me. And her husband Potiphar finds out, and Joseph gets thrown into prison. And once again, Joseph gets smacked, and the ball changes direction. I mean, he ascended in Potiphar's home. He worked hard for Potiphar, but then he gets thrown into prison for 10 years. And when I say prison, I mean dungeon. And when I say dungeon, I mean a dark room. But in this dark room, God continues to work in his life to develop him into the person that he needs to be for the plan that God has for him that unfolded in that dream. But let's be honest, none of us want to spend time in the dark room. I mean it's one thing to do something wrong or make a mistake and get punished or face consequences but Joseph did the right thing and he still seems to get punished. And for those of you feeling that we have done everything right, life is still not good and you begin to wonder is God near? Take a look at what happens next to uh, Joseph. So he took Joseph, Potiphar took him. Threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held and there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. Even in prison, even when nothing seems to be going his way, the Lord is with him. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. Here it says it again. The Lord was with him and caused everything that he did to succeed. Is it everything he hoped for? No, it's everything in prison But the Lord was still with him. Here's what this tells us. When you feel stuck in a job, in a situation, in a place that is a dark room, and you're waiting to be fully developed into the picture that God made you to be, do your best. Work hard as if you're doing your work for the Lord. Even if your boss is difficult and unfair. Even if your boss is the prison warden. Do your best because the Lord is with you. And he will cause your plans to succeed, even if they're not the plans that you want. Put your heart into your work. And so this continues for several years until one day, Pharaoh wakes up and he had a troubling dream. Back then, they would always try to interpret, what does this dream mean? And so Pharaoh begins asking people, you know, what what does this dream uh, mean? He says, I dreamed that I, I, I saw seven skinny cows eat seven fat cows. What does this mean? But nobody could answer that. Finally... His cupbearer, who's like a butler, says, hey, you remember uh, when I was in prison and uh, I did some time? uh, There was this guy that stayed. They let me out. He stayed. He interpreted one of my dreams. Pharaoh's at his wit's end. Pharaoh's like, well, bring him. Maybe he can figure this out. And all of a sudden, after all of these years and all of these hits, Joseph stands before the most powerful man in the world. And Pharaoh says, you know, do you know the meaning of this dream? And Joseph says, yeah, I can tell you what it means. It means you're about to have seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. And you better store up to survive the famine. And Joseph's interpretation impresses Pharaoh so much. And Pharaoh realizes that so much is at stake. Take a look at what he says here. Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials so, Pharaoh asked his officials, Can we find anyone else like this man? So obviously filled with the Spirit of God. Pharaoh didn't even believe in Joseph's God, but he realizes that God is speaking through Joseph. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on the throne, will have a higher rank than yours. Remember how Joseph began with a colorful coat that his father gave him, but he lost it. He lost everything. He ascends in Potiphar's home. He's given another coat, but he has to run out of it. And then he gets thrown into prison. But in a moment, he's brought back And now he has a new coat because he wears royalty. He's the number two leader to Pharaoh because the Lord is with him. And Joseph begins to oversee this plan and he guides Egypt through the the abundance and he stores up everything in barns. And seven years later, the famine begins. And two years into the famine, guess who shows up looking for food? His brothers. They had no idea if Joseph was still alive. They had not seen Joseph for 22 years. They wander in. Joseph recognizes them. He rushes off and breaks down crying. And then he decides, I'm going to tell them who I am. Look at what happens. He says, I am Joseph, he said to his uh, brothers. And the brothers are shocked, right? But look at what Joseph is, is concerned about first. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. And they're probably thinking he's going to kill us. <laughs> and he has the power to kill us. But Joseph says, don't be upset. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me into this place. Can you imagine saying that to somebody who hurt you? It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your uh Lives. In other words, when you believe in God, it totally changes your perspective. And Joseph says to his brothers, God used all of this, not just for me and my development. He used it to save your lives. Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. God used this dark room in Joseph's life to strip away his, his arrogance In childhood, pride, and turn him into the man that he could use to save many lives. In fact, that monk that I quoted earlier, St. John of the Cross, here's what he writes about what he refers to as the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul, he says, is able to take away all these vices and create virtue within us. Through the dark night, pride becomes humility. Greed becomes simplicity. Wrath becomes contentment. Luxury becomes peace. Gluttony becomes moderation. Envy becomes joy. And sloth becomes strength. No soul will ever grow deep in the spiritual life unless God irks passively, works passively in the soul by means of the dark night. In other words, just because you're in a dark room doesn't mean God is with you. The Lord is with you, developing you. And so let me ask this question. For those of you that are in a dark room right now, for those of you who have been through a dark room, how do you respond how do you respond? Joseph worked hard. Joseph believes that God is with him. Joseph realizes God can redeem anything. And with every hit he took, he continued to believe. You know, for many people, when they get hit enough, here's what they do. They untether themselves from God. They, they detach from their faith in in God. And this is why it feels so lonely in the dark room and 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 people wonder, you know, why isn't God with me? Why isn't he here? But Joseph didn't do that. Here's what Joseph did. He stayed tethered to his faith in God. He believed God was with him because he realized that with every hit in this tetherball game that the ball actually goes closer to the pole. And I don't know in your life what keeps hitting you repeatedly, but life is not based on life is good, God is near, life is not good, God is not near. Because if you follow Jesus, God is always near. God is always with you. You still take hits in life, but you realize Jesus has already already won the game. And so let me ask you, how do you respond to the dark room in your life? Every age and stage of life has its dark rooms. How do you respond? How do you respond? Well, to help us respond the way that Joseph did, I have a few action steps for you. Here's the first one. On the back of the uh, message notes, we put a, a list of, of questions for you to discuss. I'd love for you to take this and discuss these questions with your, with your family or, or friends over lunch uh, today, or discuss these with your uh, life group. Be good for us to reflect on these questions and discuss them with others. And then I want you to write something on the bottom of the outline. We we put this uh, statement here, "My dark room is," and we left a blank area. I want you to write in, write in what is the dark room that you have, that you have faced most recently? You know, maybe for you, it's a career, maybe it's school, maybe it's the loss of a loved one, maybe it's a breakup or a divorce, maybe maybe it's cancer, maybe it's financial. I want you to write it down and notice. We wrote, God is near. Remember that God is, is near in the midst of any uh, dark room. Jesus is with you, and he will refine you in the dark room and make you more like him, just like he did with Joseph. This is one of the reasons why we share communion each weekend. Communion reminds us that, that Jesus is right here, regardless of any dark rooms. We have community with him right here, right now, and we have community with with each other, because Jesus is here developing our lives, each of our lives, into the picture that he made us to be. Let me pray for us, and then we'll pass the communion trace. God, thank you for your promise to always be with us. Thank you that our disappointments and difficulties don't have to lead us to run from you or lead us to disobedience, but our disappointments and dark rooms can take us closer and closer to you because we rely on you more and more and more. And as we begin to write down these dark rooms that we've been through and as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus and we commune with you in these next few moments, God, would you overwhelm us by helping us see that you were there. You were with us. We were not alone. And you continue to walk with us through whatever dark rooms we face. God, I lift up everyone here who's in a dark room right now. God, would you guide guide them and help all of us feel your presence and your peace in these next few moments. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.